This is the Bates Bobcast, our weekly podcast where we take a look at the week that was in Bates Athletics. My name is Aaron Morse, and this week we have a very special guest, Bates Director of Photography and Video, Phyllis Graber Jensen. On the heels of National Girls and Women in Sports Day, we take a look at Phyllis's fight for equality in New York City high school sports, which helped pave the way for future generations. That's coming up on the Bates Bobcast. Phyllis Graber Jensen grew up competing in a wide variety of sports with the boys in her New York City neighborhood of Kew Gardens in Queens. At age 12, she took up tennis and even got to hit with Billie Jean King. But when she entered high school, she discovered no opportunities for girls to compete in varsity sports. So then 16-year-old Phyllis appealed to play on the high school boys' tennis team. And 50 years ago, despite a fair amount of backlash, she won her case. Well, I loved to play sports. I played every sport that was available to me, including tackle football, touch football, baseball, softball, punch ball, stick ball, handball, paddle ball. I played them all and I loved them. But when I was about to turn 12 years old, my parents said to me, we think you need to stop playing tackle football. And we think that tennis would be a great substitute. It's a sport you'll be able to play your entire life. And why don't you get serious about that? So that's pretty much how I got interested in tennis. So tackle football, was this with like your friends just in the park or were there organized teams that you were on or how did that go? When I was growing up in New York City, there weren't that many organized leagues. Parents would send their kids into the street when they came home from school. And I happened to grow up in an apartment complex that was right in the middle of a beautiful park, Forest Park. And it had playing fields, it had a baseball field, it had a handball court, basketball courts. And so every day I would just go into the park and I would play with my friends who were male. There were no other females playing these sports. I played with girls and we played with dolls, we hung out, we cooked, we learned how to bake, but none of these girls were on the playing fields with me. And so I would just join with a group of boys my age who were friends from school and we would play tackle football. And I still remember being in the huddle and sharing what the play was gonna be and going out for the pass. And I, at that point in my life was probably bigger than most of the boys on the field. So at that age, my size and aggression was effective in, with boys who were smaller than I was. So it was a lot of fun for me. Nice. Uh, but when your parents told you, 12 years old, let's focus on some other sport, not football, what was your initial reaction to that? Were you, were you disappointed? Were you frustrated with that? Or were you ready to embrace a different sport also, perhaps? You know, I think I sort of raised my eyebrows and thought it was ridiculous. But on the other hand, I think I had already started playing some tennis and I really liked the sport. And I thought, okay, if my parents are willing to support me in that, then I'll take up tennis more seriously. And I was still playing all the other sports. With the exception, I would say, of boxing. I really was interested in boxing, uh, and I went to a day camp where that was offered as a sport, but they wouldn't let me do it. So that was one sport that I really didn't get my, uh, my arms around when I was a girl, primarily because I was a girl. I mean, if I had been a boy, there would have been no question, go ahead and box, but not for you, I was told. So tennis, how do you go about learning um, 
the sport? Did you have an instructor? Did you learn with your friends or how did that go? So I basically, for the first years of my tennis life, I played tennis in Danbury, Connecticut, where my family and I went to a bungalow colony. And my father had played tennis in his youth and he was continuing to play as a middle-aged guy. So he started to play with me. And then he found me an instructor, a guy named Henry Bouquin in Danbury, Connecticut. And I would go over to his house where he had a tennis court once a week and I'd play with him. And then I'd spend extra hours there on my own, just hitting tennis balls, drinking orange sodas, as I recall. So that was where I really got going with tennis. Excellent. So all these sports you were interested in, who were maybe some of your role models within sports growing up? Who did you look up to maybe in professional ranks or Olympians perhaps? Well, before I, before I started playing tennis and I was just a kid playing sports, I remember in fourth grade, there was a bookshelf filled with biographies for children, you know, of every person you could conceive of in American history. And there, several of them I remember were um, women athletes. Um, one of them was Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias. And another one was Althea Gibson. And Althea Gibson was a tennis and golf player, I believe. And Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias was just an all-around athlete, Olympian, track, field, golf. So those were early role models because I devoured those books. But my real hero or, or heroine, however you want to phrase that, was Billie Jean King. She was playing tennis when I was still a kid. She was a young tennis player. Eventually, my parents sent me to a two-week camp in South Orange, New Jersey, that was run by her former coach. And she came and played with us, and I got to hit with her. And that was the, that was the highlight of my tennis life. That's something I won't ever forget. And she continues to be a role model as well. You got to meet her and hit with her. What, what was she like in terms of that encounter, I suppose? She was very warm and supportive and encouraging. But I do remember that one of the other um, tennis players there, and this is a place where I met uh, tennis players and, and female athletes who were much more accomplished than I was. And I remember one of them asking her, well, what do you think my chances are? This was a 14-year-old who was asking her. And, and Billie Jean King was just really direct. She said, you just don't have it. You, you haven't trained enough. Um, at this point in your life to be able to make it. She said it in a very kind way, but she didn't pull any punches. Nope, you're not going to make it. Interesting. So you get to high school and your high school does not have girls tennis. Did they have any girls sports at that time? And you were obviously wanting to play tennis. When did you start to think, I want to try out for the boys team and how did that process sort of start? Well, I would say that when I was in ninth grade, so I was in middle school or junior high school, as they called it. Yeah. I wanted to play on my school's handball team. And I went to the coach who was my ninth grade earth science teacher. And he knew me well, and I had him for the whole year. And when I told him I wanted to try out for the team, he just laughed in my face. So, and so I didn't get to try out for the team and I would have made it for certain. So the thought stuck in my head from that point when I go to high school, what sport would I want to play? And there was a tennis team, but there were no teams for girls in any sports. In fact, I just looked at my high school yearbook this morning to refresh my memory. And I see that they had a basketball club and a bowling club and a tennis club for girls. But if you look at the athletics section of the yearbook, there's not one photograph of a girl or any girl's team or any other girls playing on teams for the school. So when I was a first year student at high school, which was a sophomore, I went to the coach and told him I wanted to try out this guy, Ron Edis, and he was very supportive. And he said, please do try out. But I just want to tell you now 
that there's a rule that prohibits girls from competing with boys. Um, the girls club at my high school was basically a way for some girls to teach other girls how to play tennis, which was very nice and a, a good thing to do, but there was no competition. It was sort of a, it was a club activity. And um, that's when I went to the team and found out that I could try out, but I couldn't play if I made it. So I tried out anyway, and I made it. And the coach said, well, now you're going to have to do something about it because I can't let you on the team because of your, your sex is how it was phrased. So he suggested I approach the New York Civil Liberties Union. This was in 1970. So I spoke with my parents and we decided that would be a good thing to do. And that was our next step. And how did that approach go? I mean, what was, what was the first step? It was a lot of just filing paperwork or was there any hearings or anything like that? How did that kind of go? I don't remember if I or one of my parents called the New York Civil Liberties Union, but I was matched up with somebody who it turns out wasn't an attorney. He was the assistant executive director of the New York City Civil Liberties Union. His name was Ira Glasser. And he eventually became the executive director. And then he became the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union for the next 20 years. But he and I worked together and started to um, do, as you refer to it, as the paperwork in order to um, challenge the New York City Board of Education. Because it, it turns out that the state of New York had a pilot program in 1969 where they tested in five non-contact sports how girls would do in competition with boys. And the results of that study, that pilot program were positive. And they decided for New York State that they would allow girls to play in non-contact sports with boys, but it would be on a district by district um, basis. So it was up to individual districts to make changes that they saw fit. And none of the districts saw fit to make any changes, including New York City. So they were basically ignoring um, whatever overtures that Ira Glasser and the, and the New York Civil Liberties Union were making. I guess Ira Glasser decided that there was um, a hearing or a series of hearings being held in New York in 1971 by Eleanor Holmes Norton. And it was a commission of human rights. And she was holding hearings about the absence of civil liberties or the oppression of women. And so there are all kinds of people from all walks of life, including ordinary um, working people, people like Bella Abzug or um, Shirley Chisholm or the writer Polly Murray, or people like me, a high school student. And we testified, we all testified on varying topics. And the testimony that I made there received a response um, from both Eleanor Holmes Norton and the New York Times covered it. And so suddenly the story had a lot more visibility. Were you nervous? I mean, this is speaking in front of a live audience. A lot of people don't like public speaking, especially when it's an issue at that point that was so fraught. Well, take me through that experience a bit. I remember I got on the subway to go from Queens to Manhattan because it was in the city. And a, a lifelong friend of mine came along for support. And um, so it was my mother and my friend and I went down to lower Manhattan to testify. And there were lots of women there. And I remember some of them testified before me. And as I said, there were people of all um, abilities and from all walks of life. And some of them struck me as being a little bit out of step with reality. And others struck me as being like very um, on point about feminism and about the way women were treated. 
so yeah, I don't remember that I was nervous so much. I remember more about the response that I got, which was robust applause and a commendation from Eleanor Holmes Norton saying that she was impressed that so young a person would stand up and that she wished more women had come forward to testify of different you know, backgrounds and ages. So I, I think, yeah, I was nervous, but I got a very positive response. And that's what I remember as opposed to being anxious about the public speaking. But after six months, nothing was going on. So at that point, I wrote a letter to the president of the Board of Education threatening to take the case to federal court if the city didn't make a decision. So right around that time, the school superintendent changed and this new guy, Harvey Scribner came in and he held a special vote on the question that, that I had raised through the New York Civil Liberties Union. And they decided to vote three in one in favor of my proposal. And the only person on the uh, committee who was a woman was the person who cast the no vote. It's not a surprise because most of the phys ed teachers in New York City who were coaching women's sports and supporting women's sports, I, should, I can call them girls sports, we were in high school. They had you know, no budgets. They were doing their darndest to coach girls in athletics, to create a love of athletics. And so when you have a girl saying that she wants to play with the boys instead of the girls, that was um, considered to be a betrayal. And I'm thinking that might have been why, although I don't know for certain, why the woman on the subcommittee for the Board of Ed was the only person to vote against the proposal. And I'll throw one more thing in. One of my dreams in high school was to be a yearbook photographer when I was a senior and, and do all the photography for my yearbook. And so one afternoon I went up to the art teacher who was the advisor and he was married to a phys ed teacher in our school. And I said, Mr. So-and-so, I'd like to join the yearbook next year. I'm a photographer. And he basically, in front of like 10 other students, told me to drop dead. He said, based on what I had done with applying to be on the boys team and making trouble and basically screwing other girls, that there was no way he would let me participate in the yearbook. So get lost. And it was sort of a humiliating experience for me because he was doing it in front of my peers. But I also think it, it sort of exemplified how difficult it was or how upsetting it was for the, the women coaches in my high school. They weren't coaches, but they were phys ed teachers, you know, not to have any resources and then basically be told that, okay, we're gonna take your, your best resources away from you, which are female athletes and let them play with boys who continue to get the funding when they don't. So I see the, the, the problem inherent in that. And there was no consideration of, hey, we should have girls teams at that time. Like that just wasn't even a thought. I don't think there were enough athletes at a competitive level at that point mm -hmm. because girls in my generation were not encouraged to play sports. And I can only speak about my neighborhood and my slightly broader experiences, but you know, most girls, unless you were in a private school where you had access, you know, maybe you're playing field hockey, but it's not something that New York City Public School had. And even outside of school, I remember I did get to play in a softball league when I was 12 for a year. And that's where I met other girls of comparable interest and skill because they came from other neighborhoods as well. And we even went to Worcester, Massachusetts to play an all-star game, which I was on the all-star team. 
And I remember really looking forward to playing the next year. And the coach and the director of the league told me that unfortunately, girls my age quickly lose interest in playing organized sports because they're getting interested in boys. And there weren't enough girls to recruit for the next year's league. So that was the end of that. So that's the kind of environment that girls who were growing up in the 60s, you know, even that's when I was growing up and playing sports, there just weren't a lot of opportunities for organized sports. So, and if there weren't opportunities, then you didn't become competitive, which is what I was looking for was competition. So that's, I think, why they weren't talking about girls teams right at that moment. So you, you win your battle to play on the boys team. We just heard there obviously was backlash within the school. Um, but how about the actual teammates? I know the coach was supportive of you. What about your actual teammates? What was that experience like actually finally being on the team? Each and every one of them was very supportive. They had no problem with me playing on the team. They felt if I was good enough to play, then I should have a place on the team. And in, in fact, in my senior year, the second year I was on the team, we got a new coach and he was even more supportive than the first coach. So not that the first coach wasn't, but you know, there was no pushback from any of the athletes. I mean, there, the pushback that I felt was from A, the, the women in the school who taught phys ed. And then because the publicity I got in, in the press where my, my home address was printed, I would get all kinds of letters and phone calls, you know, um, hate letters and threatening phone calls, anti-Semitic comments. And again, most people were supportive, but there were enough people who were unhappy with what I was doing who took the time to write and call about it. Well, it seems odd that they would print your address in the press. Was that a common thing? Well, it might have been. I thought it was odd as well, but I, I think it might have been more common to do that. I mean, nowadays, it's easy to find someone's contact information. Then it was more difficult. I mean, you could look, you could look up my parents' name and address in the phone book, and get the phone number pretty easily or call information. But for some reason, they printed it. So I did get quite a bit of mail. And some of it was negative and some of it was threatening. Did it scare you at all? Or were you just frustrated or did you ignore it? How did that kind of go? I, I basically ignored it. I wasn't really frightened. And I, my parents were very supportive of me and created a positive environment for me around that. So I wasn't particularly worried. Um, it's, but it is sort of shocking when you pick up your home phone and somebody starts shouting anti-Semitic slurs into it. So that's a little bit unsettling, I would say. But I would also add that one of the ways that I was inspired to play sports was through my parents. As I said, my father was a lifelong tennis player in a sense, but my mother grew up in Nazi Germany and she was a track and field athlete when she was a little kid. And she actually marched in the opening ceremonies of the 1936 Olympics with a group of um, other athletes from her club. She was 11 years old. And she was also Jewish. And she claims that the, the coaches forgot that she was Jewish and allowed her to, to march in the opening ceremonies. And eventually she was kicked out. But I think she had a lifelong appreciation of sports and a love of sports that she got from her father. And so there was always support for me in my home to excel in whatever I wanted to do. And if I love sports, my parents were thrilled to be able to support me in that. Excellent. 1971. It was when you won your, your fight to play on the team. The next year, 1972, Title IX passes, which is a, a very famous bill. It's a wide-ranging bill, but one of the impacts was a lot of progress 
over the last, you know, 50 years in terms of uh, in women's sports and funding of women's sports, but it was a slow process. Did you notice, I mean, when it passed, did you think to yourself, this is a big deal right away, or did it take a few years for you to realize what impact it would have? So, you know, on paper, it seemed like a big deal. It seemed really important, but I, I would say that in my experience as a varsity athlete at Cornell, where I played on the women's team for four years, it's quite a different experience than I see in like NESCAC sports. I went to Cornell University, so they had, they had good resources there, but the men's team had the best resources. So they had the best courts and the best training experience. And they had resources that the, the women's team didn't have. They had coaching that we didn't have. And also, I remember that there were some outstanding players on my team. In fact, the number one player when I got to Cornell was a senior. She was a girl who was instrumental in overturning the rules in New York State. She was the first tennis player as a girl in New York State to play on a boys team. And so she challenged the system that I sort of described before in 1969. And so there were other people like her on the team who were, who were much better tennis players, frankly, than I was. But the kind of experience that we had as tennis team members was you practice several times a week, you go to your scheduled matches, and then see you later. It's, there was no conditioning. There was no real heavy training. Um, we didn't eat together. We didn't, you know, we didn't have the kinds of relationships and support that I see athletes have now. So it seemed like a very different kind of environment. Although, you know, people, I had friends that I made on the tennis team, but it's just, we played our tennis in this little niche and then we left and went on with the rest of our lives. And I think that reflects in part what varsity sports for girls was, was like then, at least in the league that I played in, which was, it's nice to do and it's competitive and it's fun, but it wasn't like an all out experience. The woman who was a senior when you first arrived at Cornell, who you mentioned, she kind of set the precedent in New York State that you were able to um, also um, challenge a few years later as well in New York City. I mean, were you familiar with her? Like, did you know who she was kind of coming in or did you kind of learn about that? No, I learned about her afterwards hmm. and you could look. I mean, there, I think there were there were quite a few girls my age throughout the country who were challenging the rules and regulations. I and and they would get received press and publicity. So I heard that Julie Barish, who was four years older than I was, so she had similar kind of publicity to me, but I was at an age where I probably wasn't paying that much attention to every headline in the New York Times or wherever else she appeared. So I didn't even, I didn't even know about her in particular. I just learned about her when I met her at Cornell. First time being on a, on a women's tennis team then at Cornell. I mean, you touched on the fact that the resources weren't the same, but um, I mean, in terms of intercollegiate competition, what are some memories you have of, of those four years playing, playing with Cornell in the Ivy League? And obviously you were traveling to different schools and, and whatnot, right, to, to compete? Correct. Yeah. So we played both in New York League. So we would play some, some of the state and private colleges in upstate New York. And then we would travel to Seven Sisters tournaments and other Ivy League tournaments. And, you know, I, and I think I had most of my success at Cornell as a doubles player, which is when I got really interested in doubles. And, um, you know, and I remember a particular meet at Vassar where I, I and my partner did really well. And I mean, as I said, when I look back at my experiences as a tennis player, I was a good tennis player and I was a really good athlete, but I was never going to distinguish myself as an amazing tennis player. 
So what I took away from the tennis team was the camaraderie, the, the joy of playing tennis, the ability to play with athletes who were better than I was, which clearly was one of the things that I wasn't getting in junior high school and high school. So this was what registered with me from my experience at Cornell. Yes, I was able to develop my skills into a sport, as my parents pointed out, would be a lifelong sport and play as much as I could with some coaching. But just to give you an example of what my mindset was like, I remember we once went to um, a match on a Sunday morning in upstate New York, and my coach decided we would stop for breakfast at a, a diner called the Brooklyn Diner. So we, you know, we sit down, have breakfast. I ate so much that I could barely complete the match when I got to the, the tennis court. So, you know, this is showing me in hindsight that yes, I was taking it seriously, but I wasn't a conditioned athlete. I mean, nobody in their right mind would go to play a competitive sport and have, you know, bagels and locks and eggs and whatever else I was having, you know, an hour before the match, it's just insane. So um, that just puts it into a little bit of context for me. We recently have the 35th annual National Girls and Women in Sports Day. I mean, how have you seen women's sports grow over the years? You cover them here at Bates with your photography. Uh, what's the next step, in your opinion, for women's sports in general? I mean, it's obviously grown a, a whole lot in, in the last 50 years, but I'm sure there's, there's more to do. Yeah, when I watch the athletes here at Bates, both men's and women's, but of course, women strike me in particular with their prowess and their accomplishment. They're just conditioned and competitive in ways that as a, a little kid, I might not have ever imagined. They just exemplify what training and access um, can do and how much stronger women have become and how much more competitive they, they've become. So, you know, I, I think about maybe two things in connection to, to your question. One is the issue of transgender athletes and whether, I, I see that as an issue now and whether at a, an elite level of sports or even at a collegiate level, whether um, transgender athletes should be able to compete in sports with those that they identify their gender as. So I would guess I would weigh more on the, the side of inclusivity. If you identify um, in a particular way, if you identify as a female, then you should be able to play female sports. And you know there are all kinds of issues that need to be discussed around that, but I see that as sort of a continuation of girls and boys playing together, transgender athletes playing with cisgender athletes and where those decisions will end up being made. I also think that a lot of the arguments that were made when I was a girl, which were girls are weaker, girls are mentally weaker as well. They're more emotional. They can't with, withstand the pressure physically or emotionally of playing. I think that's that way of looking at male versus female has evolved to a large extent. But I also, I also see it as something that's gonna continue to evolve till we get to the point where we're really not going to have that many distinguishing factors between genders or, um, and the, the thing, the, the example that comes to mind, and it has nothing to do with sports in particular, is this science fiction show called The Expanse, which takes place about 200 years from now. And it's, um, it's about people living on Earth and Mars and um, elsewhere in, the, in space. And the differences, both physical and mental, between the characters, male and female, have been basically erased. And I really see that as aspirational. 
I mean, that's a binary way of looking at things, of course, but I see a lot of these distinctions being erased. And so even an argument that was made when I was a kid that nobody's really followed up on particularly is instead of having male and female sports teams, just have a team. And maybe that's not realistic right now, but maybe 200 years from now, that's gonna be where we are. And I won't live to see that, but those are my thoughts on that subject. Great. I mean, your passion for tennis continues to this day. You still play. I see you over there at Merrill a lot. Um, what makes that sport in particular your favorite? Or, I mean, is this the one that's the kind of lifelong sport? Would you rather still be playing tackle football, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, well, with my back, I wouldn't rather be playing tackle football. Um, my back wouldn't hold up to that. Well, you know, I think yeah, I've been playing tennis a long time, and I think part of the pleasure in playing it is the use of muscle memory that, you know, I, I can just – naturally do certain things and I enjoy doing the things that I can do well. Um, but I also cringe at my, my shortcomings, I think, which is another reason why tennis might be one of the sports I dislike most playing, because if you continue to make the same mistakes for 50 years, you know, it's a painful experience. Um, but it, it also, tennis reminds me of my childhood, you know, and how my parents play my, I played with my father, my mother encouraged me, she would drive me to tournaments and and I just remember that um, when my mother was on her deathbed, actually, and it was, you know, she had minutes to live and we were talking to her in her bedroom before she died. And one of the last things we were reminiscing about was how my mother would take me to tennis tournaments and practices when I was a kid and a teenager. And um, to me, that sort of symbolizes how, how I feel about tennis. It's really a family-based pleasure that was given to me as a gift by my parents. And they were right. It's a sport that I continue to play. And I love the camaraderie with the athletes, you know, the, the major athletes that I play with at Bates, staff and faculty and friends at Bates. And it's just a wonderful experience that I wouldn't give up for anything. Awesome. Well, it would not be a complete interview without asking about your photography. You were actually originally hired at Bates as a writer. How did you go about showing everyone that being a photographer maybe was the, was the best fit perhaps there? Well, you know, what really did it for me, I was hired as a writer. Um, I had experience as a writer and a photographer, but I was told you're hired as a writer, you're not gonna be doing photography. But then along came the internet and um, I started working for Bates in 1995 and which is pretty much the time of the birth of the World Wide Web, right? And as the years went on, there was a bigger and bigger need for photography. And so the need for photography gradually outdid the need for writing. So it's sort of my job evolved from just writing to writing and photography to some more photography than video. And then now I basically do photography and I still do some writing, but social media has pretty much cemented the need for images day in and day out. So that's, that's what accounted for that, I think. And where did you first learn to be a photographer? I mean, you mentioned the, the high school yearbook did not want you to contribute. So when did you first learn? You know, again, it was my father who was hmm. also, uh, he was an amateur photographer and he, he had a um, single lens reflex camera that he gave to me when I was a kid. And so he sort of developed my love of photography with me. We took a little course together when I was in sixth grade at the local elementary school at night. And then it, it took off from there. You do a lot of it at Cornell when you weren't playing tennis? Well, then I worked at the yearbook at Cornell. They, okay. they, they allowed me. Yeah, excellent. So sports photography, much different than other types of photography, I think. 
Uh, what are some tricks you've learned over the years to master sports photography uh, in particular, perhaps? So I think some of the things that are important in sports photography are anticipation, which means that you know the ins and the outs of the sport that you're covering, and also knowing the ins and outs of the camera equipment that you're using. Well, I don't always know the ins and outs of all the sports. I have to say that's not one of my strongest points. Some I know better than others, but if you cover sports long enough, then you, you get to anticipate what's gonna happen. And so that made me a better sports photographer. But I also have an interest in storytelling, which sports is great for. And in sports, the peak moment of action is not always the best storytelling moment. It could be something leading up to it. It could be something right after the reaction. It could be something on the field, on the sidelines. I think all sports photographers are always looking for that as well. And that's something that helps to make me a more complete sports photographer, I would say. Because athletics is so visual, you're always gonna find something juicy, whatever game or competition you're covering. Well, anything else you wanted to mention about your, your fight to play sports in high school or kind of general stats of women's sports we have not gone to talk about yet, perhaps? I just appreciate the evolution that I see from the time that I was a girl where sometimes you were made to feel shame or difference because of an interest in playing sports. And it was something that in the end didn't matter to me because I just enjoyed it so much. There were things I didn't enjoy being called a, a tomboy which didn't coincide with my identity at all, or being made to feel that I played sports well, but for a girl, I had to hear a lot of that. And when I look at, you know, I have a 31 year old daughter where, so when she was coming up or the athletes that I meet today and see what they're doing, it just seems like we've moved so far ahead in terms of the life of sports that we offer to people, regardless of gender. And now regardless of, you know, identity or gender identity, um, I just think the world continues to change and sometimes you have to fight for it, but it's encouraging for me to see that things can change and to see the, the fruits of um, their efforts because there's nothing like watching, you know, some of the athletes we have at Bates in competition. And I, I mean that for both the men and the women, but of course, as I said, I have a special appreciation for some of the powerhouses and women's sports that we have here. So my hat's off to them and their coaches. Awesome. Phyllis Graber Jensen, thank you so much for joining us on the Bobcast. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Aaron, for your interest. I appreciate it too. Next time on the Bates Bobcast, we'll return to our senior salutes with the football team. The Bobcats won back-to-back games to end the 2019 season, but saw their 2020 campaign wiped out due to the coronavirus. That's next time on the Bates Bobcast. Mike, 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 M